Welcome back to the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. This is the first episode of our Final Fantasy X podcast series. Can't believe it. It finally won. It finally won. It was a close call between Final Fantasy X and Chrono Cross. It would have been interesting to do Chrono Cross now because by the time this goes live, I think the remaster is either going to be coming out in a week or mm. will be on the same week. Yeah. But uh, it's been a, a long-standing tradition <laughs> since the beginning of this podcast about a year ago that FF10 just loses to things and loses <laughs> yeah. and loses and loses and Which people is so, are getting mad. If, if we were to ask most of the people who follow this channel, what's your favorite game? Yeah. FF10 would probably, probably be, be the top. Yeah. Well, top two or three. But <laughs> yeah. for whatever reason, in the, sp in the specific pairings of the polls, it was like number two every single time. It just wouldn't win. It and wouldn't so win. this Couldn't time, it. it won. Yeah. And I'm very excited to talk about it because this is a game I've been wanting. Like, I've had a sort of an itch to revisit for yeah. a while. I hadn't played it since I did my original sort of like retrospective review on it back in, I think, 2016. Oh. Or something like that. I first played it in probably like 2018. Yeah. That was so my first time. It's been about five or six years, hmm. somewhere around there, since okay. I've played it. And nice. I've been talking about this with the patrons that I stream with. Um, there are certain things I had opinions about that they were, you know, kind of asking me about now. Do yeah. you still feel this way? What about this? What about that? It's like, well, and it's like, well it's been so I long <laughs> since I've played this that, yeah. like, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe there's something I missed. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of keeping an eye on very specific things this time. Um, and so, you know, just keep that in mind as we're talking. Like, yeah. we're going to be reevaluating the story. But, and I always have to do this when we first start a new podcast. The, if you're new, so say you've never seen our podcast before, what yeah. we do with this is we're, we're analyzing the story specifically. Particularly, yeah. Not so much the gameplay mechanics, though we will bring those up time to time. But this is a storytelling analysis podcast on video game stories. And the way that we try to handle this is something like a video game book club. Yeah. Um, where you play along with us and have, have you not played the game before, say this is your first time, um, you will have the opportunity to do so without being spoiled on late game events now. So yeah. we're only so, going so to be... So long as you don't read the comments. Yes, <laughs> avoid the comments. But um, we're not going... Like, the, the place we played up for today, though I don't think we'll get to it. No, no. Is up through... <laughs> I'd be surprised. When you first arrive at the Kilika Temple. Yeah, yeah. That's where we played up to, but I think we're going to probably only get up to maybe just the, the beginning scene, the first scene where, the where beginning. Titus gets taken from yeah, yeah. Xanarkand into Spira. Like just the first 15 minutes. I yeah. suspect that's probably where we'll stop today. But that being said, we're not going to talk about anything that happens after Kilika Temple now. Yeah. So don't worry about spoilers. Unless we specifically call it out. We'll call it out when it's necessary to do yeah, so. And then we'll give time you time codes and all that I stuff. Exactly. So... Play along with us if you've never played this game before or if you'd like to replay it. Um, that is where we played up to for, for this week. Um, so that's probably the first four-ish hours of the game or something like that. Yeah, somewhere in there. Um, okay, so without further ado, um, the next thing we, we typically like to do before we get started jumping right into the story is to look a little bit into the development history of these games and try to get a handle on where the creators were coming from when they made it. 
So what, yeah. were, what were they thinking? What were their ambitions and their goals? Um, I like to do that before sort of like forming an opinion on something because to me it's more important to understand what was the creator's intention with this? Yeah, yeah. Did they achieve that or not regardless of whether I like that choice? Exactly. Was that what they were trying to do? Yeah. So analyze it based on what it's what it purports to be instead of what you wanted it to be. Exactly right. Yeah. So um, we're going to jump into that uh, first for the first probably like thirty minutes or so. We'll kind of go over some of that. Okay. So I like to start with key developers. Um, FF eight. Yes. T team FF eight. This is basically yeah. the same leadership and key developers yeah. as was on Final Fantasy eight. So if you have not seen our Final Fantasy VIII podcast series, there's a lot of history with these particular people that yeah. you can find there that I will not reiterate today um, about some of the uh, friction that was going on behind the scenes mm. on the Final Fantasy team between Yoshinori Kitase, Tetsuya Nomura, um, even Tetsuya Takahashi, who went on to make Xenogears. Yes. And Sakaguchi. And Hironobu Sakaguchi. Felt like he was losing control of it a right. little. Right. The creator of Final Fantasy, yeah. who had very different ideas about where they should take the series yeah, in what it's supposed to be, the yeah. 3D era. Yeah. It's like, how should this look? What kind of world should we make? How should the design yeah. philosophy go? How should we change or keep the formula of Final Fantasy that had been established on the NES and Super NES? And they disagreed on this a lot. Yeah. So what ended up happening is that after Final Fantasy VII, they kind of split into teams, and yeah. there were like a lot of different teams making Final Fantasy games at the same time. So after Final Fantasy VIII finished, they had Final Fantasy IX, X, XI, and for part of the development, twelve. Yeah. And Spirits Within. At the same time. All being made at and the same yes, time. Yes, that's right, Spirits Within, yes. So the movie yes. and FF9 were kind of spearheaded by Sakaguchi. Uh, Final Fantasy X, right on the coattails of eight, yep. was being uh, produced by this, this team, Yoshinori Kitase's team. And then he had um, Matsuno, who made Final Fantasy Tactics and Vagrant Story, off the back of Vagrant Story, started to work on 12. 12 yeah. He was in the early pre-production stage you know, its full development didn't start till after 10 was released, but. Yeah. And Final Fantasy XI was headed by Hiromichi Tanaka, who mm. had come into the company with Sakaguchi and had not worked on Final Fantasy since three. Wow. He went on to kind of produce and headline um, the Mana series. Oh, that's right. That's and right. some other things. But this was yeah. his first time coming back to Final Fantasy was on 11. So mm. they had all these projects going at once. Final Fantasy was no longer just a single team headed by Sakaguchi. Yeah. It was a bunch of teams that had a bunch of different ideas about what Final Fantasy is or should be made. And so you started to see very different styles mm -hmm. um, post Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. So anyways, a lot more of that is discussed in the FF8 podcast. I encourage you to watch that if you want to learn more about that history. But that being said, Final Fantasy X uh, was in development by the same team that did FF8. So this is uh, producer and director Yoshinori Kitase, who came into Square during the production of FF4, Four, yeah. got his real start doing event scene direction on 5, mm -hmm. and worked very closely with Sakaguchi, and then directed 6, 7, and 8. So, and he is the one who's kind of like the executive producer now 
now. of the Final Fantasy series. Yeah, of like 7 Remake and 15. And yeah. yeah, and uh, so his team is essentially what makes up what they have now in Square as Creative Unit uh, Division 1, or mm. Creative Business Unit 1, I think is okay. what it's called. Um, and yeah, so they're the ones heading the um, Final Fantasy VII Remake project. They were the ones who did the Final Fantasy XIII trilogy. They did this game, Final Fantasy X. So a lot of these mm. developers are that division of Square, right? Then you have, like, say, uh, Creative Business Unit 3 in Square now who does Final Fantasy fourteen mm. and the upcoming Final Fantasy sixteen. Yeah. So if you were not aware of this, these, these are very different teams with very different creators, and that's yeah. why Final Fantasy feels really different between yeah. a lot of its entries, right? So anyways, we, we talked a lot in the FF, FF8 podcast about this team's style. Yep. So again, I'll just point you in that direction if you want to hear more about that. But Yoshinori Kitase directed FF10. Uh, here were some of the lead designers. This is probably the first time that we have talked about Motomo Toriyama. Motomo, yeah, did events and things, So yeah. he had been kind of an event planner or event yeah. scripter on all the way back to like FF7, really. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure this is right. He handled like the, the wall market, um, like Bumblebee in sort of oh, like section nice. of Final Fantasy oh, VII. Nice. I, nice. That's one of yeah. uh, among others that he would have worked on in that it's game. A very unique, yeah. Section. When you yeah. hear that, it's like, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but Motomo Toriyama went on after this game to direct Final Fantasy X-2. Oh, and, that was him. That's right. That's yeah, right. and to direct the Final Fantasy XIII trilogy. Yeah. And he is now, I believe. Well, he was, I don't know what the technical credit would be for this, but like an assistant director on Final Fantasy VII Remake. He's credited oh, really? in, under direction alongside like Tetsuya Nomura. Yeah. And now that Tetsuya Nomura is, is not directing part two, I think Motomo Toriyama is like kind of more in that position alongside. Mm. So Tetsuya Nomura, Naoki Hamaguchi, and Motomo Toriyama are credited as directors on the Seven Remake. Mm. I think Naoki Hamaguchi and Toriyama are the ones who will be leading Continuing. part two, as Tetsuya Nomura seems to be moving on to something else. Right? Yeah. So, anyways, that's who Motomo Toriyama is. Um, then you have Takayoshi Nagazato. Mm. He's going to be someone we'll be talking about a little bit because he did the maps for this game. Yeah. And traditionally... Final Fantasy games were kind of designed under the same design philosophy when it comes to field and map creation. Mm. Um, you, you create, you know, map screens that are within towns or caves or dungeons or things like that yeah. that you explore, but then you come out to a overworld map yeah, yeah. that connects all of those areas mm -hmm. with little icons like castle icons or, you know, like archway icons that take you into a mountain or... Um, you know, things like that. Yeah. And so you would walk onto that tile and it would take you into the, the map screens for the town or something yeah. like that. And then you come back out and you have, you have, you have a, a little character represented on this world that's sort of scaled in such a way yeah. to where he looks huge in the world. And, and I think he wanted to do that. He wanted to have that similar thing but 3D within the big world. Yeah, so I've, ha I've got a <coughs> quote from him about his reason for wanting to actually get away oh, to not from that. that. Okay, okay, nice. Um, which is, a lot of Final Fantasy fans will notice, like, this was a pretty big departure in the feel of exploration. 
Yeah, because from previous, you end up. It's Final just Fantasy a map games. with the dot dot dot, just like a Mario game or something. Yeah, and you just kind of you just click on a, that yeah. city and you just kind of go there, and you're just there. Yeah, right. Um, it, it's similar to say Final Fantasy Tactics world map. Which oh yeah, is just yeah, nodes totally. that are connected. Yeah, and you just go to a node and anyway. Um, okay, so then you have Toshiro Tsuchida, who was the battle system director on this one. He went on to also direct the battle systems on the Thirteen trilogy. And he ended up becoming the head of prod, uh, Product Development Division 6. So before they had mm. their current structure, which is creative business units, which are much smaller. I think there's only like three or four creative business units. I could be wrong on that. It, this has been years ago since, I, since they did this yeah. restructuring. They may have added some. But they had like a ton. They had a ton of what they called Product Development Divisions. Mm. It was like 10 plus or something like that. And That's they consolidated those into just a, a, a select few yeah. creative business units. But during the time under that structure, uh, Tsuchida, who did this battle system, was um, the head of Product Development Division 6, which produced My Life is King. Oh, great. Which is actually nice. a game I really, really like. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> My Life is King is actually a really fun game. <laughs> yeah. So I, was, it was, I, was, I thought it was cool to learn that, you know, that he had that sort of uh, history at Square. Uh, for programmers, you have Koji Sugimoto, Takashi Katano. And then as artists, of course, Tetsuya Nomura, who uh, did the character designs. Yeah. Uh, Yusuke uh, Naura, Naura, who yeah. did the art direction generally and then Shintaro Takai. Um, and then for writers of the story, Kazushige Nojima, yeah, who big had name. written FF7 and 8, and now this. Um, he's big. Most people who are big Square Enix fans know who he is, right? Daisuke Watanabe. Hmm. Um, and then Motomo Toriyama and Yoshinori Kitase are also credited as writers on this. Oh, okay. And then uh, composers, Nobu Oematsu. Yes. We all know him. Um, but he was, this I think was the first time where he didn't compose the entire game himself. Yeah, yeah. He had like four, four people helping him. He had a yeah. lot. So this was the first time he yeah. requested help from other composers to join him. And uh, Masashi Hamauzu was um, one of the prominent the composers featured on this soundtrack. I can really tell the difference in his style really? to Sakaguchi's style. Well, um, Sakaguchi said, well, not Sakaguchi, Uematsu. Uematsu, sorry. Uematsu. <laughs> Uematsu said specifically that he picked these people to help him out because their style was so different from Yes, him. right. And so he wanted kind of their feel and, and they work together, but they're different. And he, he wanted them because he could just do it himself yeah. if it was close enough. You yeah. know, he was looking for something different. Nobu Uematsu writes, in like several different, he, he has this eclectic sort of like style where he, he jumps mm. around in genres. Um, like he'll do the orchestral stuff, but he likes that like rock sound. And he loves the rock Electronical sound. stuff. And then, he'll and then he's got some like into, of the, the chants and yeah, the choir singing, you know. He, he, he likes to play around in genre a lot. Yeah, he does. And he, he has a really heavy focus on strong melody um, you can kind of, you, just, you feel a Nobuo Oimatsu soundtrack, you, like, you, you kind of know what it's like. Okay, so I'm here in post editing this right now, and I figured it might be interesting to do a little bit of a demonstration of the differences in style between Uematsu and Hamauzu. So I've pulled up some tracks here on uh, YouTube, 
And I'm going to play some of the character themes, which are primarily done by Uematsu. I think all the character themes in FF10 are done by Uematsu. And for those of you who are familiar with Final Fantasy music, these will sound familiar, right? He has a style to how he writes his music that is pretty recognizable. So here's Yuna's theme, for example. Right? Uh, we got uh, Titus's theme here. And then Riku's theme. This is another really good example of his style. He tends to write very clean, crisp, almost percussive, plucky sort of themes that have very strong, recognizable melody to them, right? And this is to say nothing of battle music. Um, I'm kind of speaking specifically about one sort of type that each composer does. Uh, we could break down battle music and, and other types um, as well, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to stick to this. Now, let's skip over to Hamuzu. Um, his style is much broader in, in the way that it feels. There's like wide soundscapes, lots of texture, which is sort of built with like a pad that's underneath everything. This just ethereal, mystical sort of pad that sort of just fills the soundscape and he layers on top of that lots of interesting things and it's not like he doesn't use melody but melody doesn't seem to be at the forefront of a lot of the music that he writes it's more atmospheric in nature here is thunder planes from final fantasy 10 <laughs> Right, do you see the difference between those two things? Uh, here we have Makalania Woods from Final Fantasy X. A lot of times he'll use like a single element that's sort of just like pulsing the same note or maybe just like a rhythmic sort of like little... I'm not sure I have the right, like, terminology for it. Uh, maybe like a little phrasing, just like a short phrasing that will be usually kind of on the brighter end, like a bright piano. He likes to use really bright, sprightly piano for this sort of thing that's driving like a beat with like a repeating rhythm or phrase with that instrument that he then behind that fills with these big pads and wide strings. Here's a really good one that I think really encapsulates Hamauzu's style, uh, the splendid performance from Final Fantasy X. You see what he's doing at the piano there? It's just repeating sort of like a phrase. And then and then he comes in and fills in the rest of the soundscape 
with these big sweeping pads and orchestral strings. Um, Besaid Islands is another one that Hamouzu wrote. You hear that little electronic that's underneath all that, right? Now, you'll be able to recognize this a lot on the Final Fantasy XIII soundtrack. For instance, in this track, uh, The Vestige. Or from this track, Mysteries Abound. Or from this track, uh, Dust to Dust. From this track, the cradle will fall. So I think you get the idea, and you can hear this across all of his soundtracks, even here in the Alliance Alive, right? Like the main theme from the Alliance Alive. Like as soon as you start to hear that style, you'll really recognize it anywhere. Uh, this this track here, the rainy city Svarna, really has that feel to it. I mean, it sounds like something that could come straight from Final Fantasy Thirteen. This one, rainy world, is probably the best example of the similarities. So anyways, hopefully that gives you an idea of uh, what we're talking about when we're discussing the differences between Uematsu's style and Hamauzu's style. And hopefully you'll be able to pick that up as you play different games from these composers. World of Final Fantasy is another example uh, where Hamauzu was the main composer. And it's got a lot of this sort of feel to it as well. Masashi Hamauzu is more... He has like big wide soundscapes mm. with, where he'll he'll fill the space in with like a large pad or something like okay. that, and it, it gives a lot of texture in the background yeah. of the piece. And then he'll kind of like layer in all of these things, and they've got this big ethereal sort of like textured, am, uh, atmospheric almost sound to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he was the lead composer on Final Fantasy Thirteen, and that game very oh, much has that okay, feel sure. to it. Yes. Um, other games um, that he's composed for, where you'll hear this, are um, The Alliance Alive. Oh, Alliance Alive. Um, I don't know if you've played that. It I have not a, played it. No. It was a Nintendo 3DS RPG 
um, came out from Atlas a couple years ago. And uh, it's pretty good, actually. I actually really, really like the game. About, but hearing the music in that game, it was like, oh, this is a Hamauzu soundtrack, isn't yeah. it? And you go check it. Like, it yep, was. Yep. Nice, nice. <laughs> so, uh, oh, he also did um, World of Final Fantasy, which has oh, that yeah. feel to it as well. Yeah. I so, forgot about that game. Hamauzu. I like his style a lot, but it is very distinct yeah. from, uh, from Uematsu. And then the third composer, Junya Nakano, who actually did a ton of tracks on this as well. In fact, I think he might have done more than Hama Uzu did. Well, dude, this is a huge, what is there, 91 tracks? Yeah, a 91 ton of tracks. tracks. On this. this is a big, 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 big soundtrack. Soundtrack. So those are the main players, and kind of like hopefully point you a little bit into some of the other work that they've yeah. done to familiarize yourself with that. Um, okay, so here's a quote here. Okay. Well, go ahead. I was thinking, can we talk about 17, or should we? Oh, 17? The oh, yeah, go the ahead. Pre- Actually, yeah, start there. Start there. Kay. That's a good place to start. I've got it. So back when FF9 was, you know, still being made, um, this game was not supposed to be a Final Fantasy necessarily. The game that was being developed, at least from Yoshinori Kitase, was, um, it was going to be called 17, and it was going to explore, like, really interesting themes of life. Basically, somebody comes to the end of their life at the age of 17, and what would a world be like, you know, with that? And you can see some artwork from it. It's got, like, little cherub angels and stuff, and it's fascinating. But the the game that was going to be called 17 is what turned into Final Fantasy X. Right. Right? And so I've got... There's a, a girl named Yuna... And she was supposed to go on a pilgrimage for a humanitarian organization, a very different kind of thing. Yevon was yeah. going to be a humanitarian group instead of a, like a church. Um, and they were fighting a plague. There was a big plague that was going around. And she was you know, one of the health workers who was going to go help people out. Um, anyways, th- that was kind of like the whole idea. Very similar themes were going to play into it, though. Um, and... Titus was supposed to be a plumber, is what I have written down. <laughs> so before, before it was at the um, pod racing was the inspiration for Blitzball, which is oh, weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. That, that's what it says. That's what he said. I don't know. I don't get exactly why. But <laughs> for whatever reason, um, I think it's uh, Katase watches Star Wars and says, oh my gosh, I need to make Blitzball. <laughs> I don't get the connection. I really don't. But it's fast. It's exciting. It's different. It's new. It's it's um it's actually a little bit similar to Hiroyuki Ito because he said that uh, it was Formula One racing. Ah. But then also um, the NFL were his okay. inspirations. Hey, that's interesting. For I, particularly FF 12s combat system, but the a- Formula One yeah. racing for the ATB system. That's fascinating. Where it's like, you know, anyways. So the things that they watch that then translate into what they end up doing, it's kind of like hard to make the connection. That's how how creatives are, though, you know? (laughs) And it's like they'll see something and it'll spark a fire in them that seems unrelated. To them, it's perfectly related. But they sure couldn't explain it to you. That's why they're artists. Otherwise, they can't. That's how they convey it. Um, But anyways, it was going to be a very, very vastly different game, uh, Mm. but similar themes. And they ended up scrapping everything but keeping the two main characters and then rebuilding FF10 kind of around them. uh, Some of the only similarities, well, there's some similarities we'll get into later because they're kind of spoilery about the story. Right. Uh, But one of them is that uh, Titus and Yuna are both 17 years old. Right. That's one of the, like, few things they carried over, yeah. Yeah. But it's pretty crazy. This game is totally going to be completely different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
But once they kind of got more in line, right, with like the direction they wanted to go mm -hmm. on this. Um, I, real quick, I had this quote from Shinji Hashimoto, who is like a, a producer. Kingdom Hearts guy now, yeah. Producer on Final Fantasy Kingdom Hearts. Yeah. Um, he kind of talking about what I was saying earlier, right, with all the projects being done at the same time. The, the trio of PlayStation games we made provided a high boost to the company, so they sold really well, right? They enriched yeah. our lives. We moved to better offices in Meguro. We got new computers. Oh, Lots more staff were joining, but Sakaguchi was always looking for the next big thing. Uh, there were so many projects uh, on the go at that time. I think at one point, FF9, 10, 11, 12, and Spirits Within were all concurrently in development at the studio. So they were oh, man. they were busy. FF7 changed their lives <laughs> they, they, <laughs> for sure. They kind of got it in over their heads a little bit. Yeah, and so. But. Um, yeah, some of the feedback that Kitase had received, because FF7 and 8, right on the back of each other, had very yeah. different, more futuristic or maybe sci-fi yes. elements to them. Yeah, yeah. Than like a cyber Final yeah. Fantasy fans were typically used to. Mm -hmm. I mean, 6 was a little more steampunk and in, like yeah. kind of industrial almost. Yeah, more industrial. But um, like industrial revolution sort of age, right? But... Uh, some of the fans were, were sending in complaints and being like, we want a fantasy world. Like, go mm -hmm. back to doing a fantasy game, right? Um, again, it's, it's hard to know, like, exactly how many fans were... When, when if yes. 7 and 8 were as popular as they were, yeah, and yeah. many people's first introduction to them... It's like, well, it, this is clearly what people want. Yeah, right? it's like, probably the majority yeah. were fine with it. But And then FF9 doing half as well as 8 is like... Yeah. You would think that you'd have a pretty good idea based on the money dollars. Yeah, that where things should go. What people were enjoying in any way. Yeah, um, what they wanted. But anyways, when you're receiving negative feedback or complaints, it tends to feel like, oh man, I'm getting all these complaints. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. <laughs> anyways, that's how Kitase was feeling with people calling for a return to a more traditional fantasy setting yeah. for future Final Fantasy games. And rather than sort of like giving into that demand or like that request from fans, he, he had the idea that he wanted to sort of redefine or recontextualize what a fantasy setting could be. Because he felt like these people, these fans' views were sort of constrained to this... The medieval... European medieval. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah. yeah European medieval, yeah. Specifically, yeah, like Western European medieval yeah. setting. Like, that's what a fantasy setting is. Yes. And this is actually a sentiment I've seen from a lot of people online nowadays. Like, why does it always have to be medieval Western European stuff? Like... Can we have like more interesting or different types of worlds other than that? We've seen that yeah. so many times, right? That's kind of the way he viewed this, right? That they had a, like a simple view on what a fantasy world could be. Mm. And so he wanted to really do something different that hadn't been done before. And this is, in my opinion, probably one of the most unique aspects of Final Fantasy X. And one of the reasons yeah. why I find it to be really Just special. The setting, the... the setting is yeah. so different. Yes, from Bo anything both else. Xanarkand and Spira. Yeah, just like, just, and that's what this is. What one of the big takeaways for me, having not played this game in a while, playing it the second time, and really appreciating how unique this is. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, in Xanarkand there are rivers flowing through the sky. Yeah, through the air, a <laughs> yeah. river. Like, yeah. I've never seen that before, nor since. It's been twenty years. No one's yeah. ever done that again. Right. At least it, I'm sure somebody knows of something. But it's like that's such a cool idea. Yeah. And who would have thought of that? You yeah. Know? Tetsuya Nomura has actually commented directly on this too, saying he yeah. feels like this is what makes 10 
stand yeah. out or be special in the series. So far, that's my thinking as well. Yeah, and it's, it's so and so cool. So they decided to go to Asian influences rather yeah. than European ones to and, create and their like world. Pacific. And yeah, the yeah, South yeah. Pacific mm -hmm. islands was like where they really. They I think they actually went scuba diving there or went and visited. Um, there's at least one member <laughs> of the team I remember reading would go scuba diving there every year on yeah. vacation, and oh, so sweet. they were like. Let's go down there and take elements from that culture yeah. and incorporate that into the world that we want to create here for this fantasy city. They took some Philippines, some Indonesia, some Thailand, some yeah. Okinawa, some yeah. Hawaii, yeah. and just like put it all together, but using Japan to kind of fill in the gaps. Yeah. But so it's still fantasy, but it's and it still seems very Western. Yeah. But it's super Eastern, even right. in the philosophy and some of the religious stuff. Yep. Yep. It's very Eastern. Yeah. It's not very Western. Right. And uh, Okinawa in particular, right, um, yeah. there's, there's been some, I can't remember, it's been a, a long time since I've like really, really like dug hardcore into the research on this yeah. particular thing, so I'm just trying to pull this from memory, but um, the, with the names, uh, Titus and Yuna, right? Oh yes, um, Tida, Tida which in, yeah. is the Japanese y Yuna. version. Yuna, yeah. by the way, Yuna, not just Yuna. Now you say it however you want in English, <laughs> but when you're referencing the Japanese, it's Yuna with two U's, because U now with one U means something um, different. Different. <laughs> <laughs> you can look it up, people. <laughs> yeah, but Okinawa in Japanese is real different from It like is, it's quite different, yeah. Or main they would probably tell you it's Japanese. not Japanese, but yeah. to the extent that it is Japanese, because the imperialistic you know, influence on their society, um, it is quite different Japanese. Yeah, so those names, Tita, Yuna, mean sun and moon, Yes. So well, that could have been I can new. offer a little bit to this one. So Yuna sort of means moon. Tida definitely means sun. Yeah. Tida means sun for sure. Yuna actually is the Okinawan word for the uh, hibiscus oh. plant. Okay. Or what's well, the tree of the hibiscus, and then the flowers that bloom. And the hibiscus flower only blooms at night. Mm. And it symbolizes the. It's a symbol of the night. And the the word you just in general uh. does mean night. In Japanese, the U, like the, well, it's a, there's a kanji to it. Anyways, it's the, it's the ta katakana, but in a kanji, it means U and it means night. And um, that is sort of connected to the moon. So you've yeah. got Tira, who's the sun, and then Yuna is more night. The daytime even, versus the nighttime, yes. sun versus night. And I, I think they could have, I think there's like, I think there's a way that they could have had Yuna's name mean moon, but they would have had to have changed one syllable to like maybe Utah or something like that. And they, they like the name Yuna better. Oh, but okay. And it still had that symbolism of night, yeah, right? right? And so it's the sun and then the night. So that's, the, that's what those mean right there. Yeah. So, you know, people would, would bring this up in um, debates about how Titus's or Titus's name is meant to be pronounced. See, it's a, it's a Japanese word, Tida, and I don't think... In the Japanese, they say Tida, yeah. I'm not sure, <laughs> but um, James Arnold Taylor, who does the voice of Well, they Tidus, don't say his name in the game. They don't, because you can, you can put your own name yes, in. Right? Yes, yes. This is, I think, the last Final Fantasy game mainline. Where they uh, allowed from you the to MMOs, do that? Aside from the MMOs, yeah. that allowed you to do this. There um, may have been a philosophical reason for that too, not having his name there. Well, yeah. Now that they're doing voice acting, it's like I know it's hard. Now it's you hard can't to voice your character. Yeah, in the I remember game. <laughs> when we would play like NBA Two K Twelve or whatever, <laughs> and it's like we'd name our characters, and it's cool. Like if your name happens to be a last name that they have in their They've little database, recorded. then they'll say it. Yeah, but they wouldn't ever say my name. They'd always say your name because yep. your name's Brown. <laughs> That was annoying. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so there's a constraint there that they decided it, to yeah, do away constraint. with after that. 
Yeah. Uh, so that because they always design very unique, like established characters as the main characters in these games. Yeah. It's not. But they so always much... let you rename. In this game, you can only rename yourself. You yes. can't name no. the people around you. Right. And I think you can name your summons too, but that's like it. Yeah. The, right. You you can't na name other people. So. And so that sort of tradition ended after it this ends, game. Yeah. Um, and you know you can understand the reasons why. But that being said, um, his name is not said in the game for that reason. Yeah. And so people debate how the name is supposed to be pronounced. So James Arnold Taylor, who does the voice of Titus in English, mm. he says the name is Titus. But the funny thing about it is the reason for it is not like, oh, this is what they told me it is. Yeah. The, they hired a narrator to do one of the trailers or commercials for Final oh. Fantasy X in English who pronounced it who that said way. The name. And nobody corrected him. Not because, hmm. oh, it should have been pronounced Titus, but wasn't, but because they didn't have any strong opinion on it. Right. And so they were like, okay, the American guy we hired to and, do this said and Titus. And that's I where your that's canon like, comes from. That's where it comes from. Yeah, that's so funny. That's literally where it comes from. Wow. It was just, that's how it was said in that commercial. Now, just because the Japanese name is Tida does not mean that the spelling T-I-D-A-S or T-I-T-U-S? It's U-S. T-I-D-U-S? T-I-D-U-S. Doesn't mean that the English is pronounced Titus. Now, yeah. that's fine if you want to say it that way. Yeah. And it's it's a little closer to the Japanese, but the name is quite different in the Japanese. So I wouldn't say right. that because they say it there that it has to be said a different way in the English. Right. Um, but Titus is a more, if you're going to naturalize and will localize the language yeah. into a different culture, you will likely want to say it the way that they would say something like that. I don't know the etymology of the name Titus, but would that ha not have something to do with water? Like tide? Tidal, tide. Yeah. I would think so. The moon, so like maybe, that would make water. sense with the game's water thing. It right? would. It would. Yeah, you'd miss the sun symbolism thing. Right. But you'd get a different symbolism, <laughs> which may not actually fit. It may not actually fit. It might fit. It fits it the, the environment for sure. Yeah. But it may not fit the the sun-night yes. dichotomy thing right. they have going. The yin-yang kind of thing. So anyways, it's funny because the guy who voices him in English, he insists yeah. on Titus. He said, well, he says you can pronounce however you want, but that's he likes that name better. That's the way that internally they pronounce the name and whatnot. And that's fine. I mean, whatever. Most uh, people I, probably said Titus growing up, though. When yes, you're a teenager and you get the game. I certainly yeah. did. <laughs> well, why not? That's how it, the name would be said in English. Yeah. So I yeah. may slip in and out of pronunciations on this. I prefer Titus, but I say Titus because that feels more official in terms of like how it's meant to be, but I don't think they really care that much. I don't know honest. what I'll say. We'll see what I say. <laughs> so anyways, uh, I'll let you guys debate in the comments like what you like better or whatever. Um, so yeah, the, the team really began to resonate with this concept of a more... Asian Pacific Island yeah. influence for the for the clothing and the cultures and the religion and like the you know the water theme yes, and the islands yeah, yeah. The and islands. all of that as just to be their basis for how to create this world. Yeah, um, you can see that even most some of the clothing too. I took some notes on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, if you have notes on that, go ahead and. Uh, it's a little bit later, but it's about Yuna's okay. dress in particular. So oh, I'll right, bring right. it up later. So. Um, you can definitely see this most particularly in early game areas like Bisade and Kilika, um, which very much have that sort of motif to them, right? That Pacific Island look and feel to them. Mm. Um, yeah. So this is another quote from Motomo Toriyama on this. He says, essentially, 
The previous games were done with an ethos of trying to depict European culture and settings in a fantastical way, but the setting for Final Fantasy X had a very Asian flavor. That was much closer to our own culture. The clothing of the characters also featured many traditional Japanese-style designs, which mm -hmm. I think led to a unique world. So you have this Japanese influence mixed with South Pacific influences that sort of like cultivated into this unique fantasy setting that, uh, I mean, maybe I just haven't played enough games since or before then, but yeah. I haven't seen since or before. Like, well, it feels very unique to this game. I know, um, I, I would add The Legend of Zelda to that to say that the way they merge East and West with the, like Breath of the Wild in particular with Kakariko yeah. Village and stuff is like pretty cool. It's yeah. pretty interesting. It's like a clash of cultures, but. Yeah. Um, so there was some concern. Uh, I think this is true anytime you're moving into a new console generation. Mm -hmm. It's like you have oh, a yeah. new hardware you're working with. Your yeah. entire workflow has to change. Mm -hmm. You just got it down. You just got to where I know. over the past five years you had this like really yeah, nice you get your pre-rendered background formula. And, yeah, like we know how to work on this. You and know, it only this. lasted a few years. And then it's like you got to yeah. switch it all up again. And that was true from six going into seven. It was like they had yes. kind of locked in their like style. 3D, yeah. It's like how do we do this, right? Yeah. Then they got it figured out on eight and nine, like how they were going to yes. develop on the PlayStation. And as 1. soon as they perfected it. Then it's like PS2 is coming out. Okay, now how do we handle this, right? Yeah, yeah. So Sakaguchi has a statement on this. He says, going from Final Fantasy VI to seven, everyone was uneasy about the transition. In making the jump to 3D, I had to ask myself whether this was indeed a Final Fantasy world as we progressed. This time, moving to the PS2, adding in voices and conducting everything in real time brought mm -hmm. its own share of anxiety. But as I mentioned before, for me, the true definition of Final Fantasy is to continue challenging myself so I'd like to explore new frontiers and move in a direction yet to be uncovered. So this was a big thing. Um, we talked about this a little bit on our last podcast series with Vagrant Story. Square had a little bit of experience at this point with developing games fully in 3D, meaning environments and characters and everything in real time in 3D, mm. rendering everything. Because with the Final Fantasy series and even with Chrono Cross and uh, Xenogears was the opposite, but they had 3D characters yeah. with a flat pre-rendered still yes, image yeah, in yeah. the background. That's how they preferred to do it. Yeah. And that just made it easier for them because they're. it's like, you know, with something like Metal Gear Solid or maybe even The Legend of Zelda, right, which is still really big. It's a big world or whatever. But, like, these mm. games are not nearly as large in scope no, as a not. Final Fantasy game was. Yeah. So the That's way that true. they handled that in terms of how many assets we have to create, how can we like consolidate this into a workflow that makes sense to release a game on a you know biannual sort of like cycle, right? Yeah. Um, how do we do that? Their answer to that on the PlayStation One, because they were always struggling with memory and with limitations on that console hardware, mm -hmm. was flat image. Just yep. just put a JPEG in the background and have them run around on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And like that's how we'll handle that, so that we can like you know give ourselves enough s runway to be able to make a game at the scope we want to, right? Um, with Vagrant Story in particular, they were like, "We're going full 3D on this." Yeah, and it made them have to cut a lot of stuff from Vagrant Story. Yeah, it was hard to actually make a full game. <laughs> they couldn't. Out of that. They had a really hard limit on polygons yeah. and all these things, and so now the PlayStation Two was like. Just a, an unbelievable leap, yeah, in yeah. terms of like what it allowed them to do. So it was 
m massive, and it meant that they were going to be making a Final Fantasy game fully in 3D for the first time. And so yeah. they're trying to determine how to tackle that. And I, I kind of like the way they did it. Because part of the style, and we talked about this in our FF8 podcast, we really loved pre-rendered backgrounds because it, it, it created these like, um, not static camera angles, but like fixed camera angles yeah. that allowed the creators to frame um, exactly the composition they wanted yes. you to see, right? Rather, and it's almost like painting. Like you can, yeah. you can get it, you can darken and brighten and you can do things specific to that perspective yeah. that would not be able to be done it were people allowed to have a free camera or anything Yeah, like there's that. a level of artistic control that yeah. the artists and director get with that they where it, they yeah. tell you what to look like or what to look at. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a free camera, the player's like looking over here while yeah. the guy's talking. And Which 10 doesn't really have a free camera. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't until FF11 and 12 that okay. you started I to have I just now that. realized but that actually, that's interesting. I like the way they handle it in 10, mm. which is sometimes they'll have sort of that angle, fixed angle that looks like something from the PS1 era. Mm -hmm. So there'll be some places in FF10 where they ah, do have so they could still a pre-rendered background. Nice. And they look especially good because they've been repainted or retouched in the HD version. I oh, remember nice. like really early on in, in Xanarkand, like right after Sin Attacks, and uh, um, Titus sort of like wakes up and he's like looking around. They just have this really, really beautiful, still, pre-rendered sort of background that he's on. And it's just like this feels like that PS1 era yeah. sort of style. Oh, nice. But at the same time, they have other shots uh, where, where the camera's following you through the scene. So the camera's sort of gliding behind you, but yeah. then it'll like break off and sort of like come up here and highlight something. Yeah, yeah. Like, 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 um, there's like especially a bridge later in the game where it's following Titus um, from, from like behind him on the right. And as he goes across the bridge, it swings behind him and it looks up at this huge temple structure. So like yeah. they have these really cool ways of highlighting what they want you to see yeah. in the environment. And then, so you don't have control over the camera as a player, Mm -hmm. But they still they still built the whole map or the whole like field in 3D so that they could move a camera through it like that. But yeah. it's it feels like it's a continuation or an evolution of the style of the PS1 game. Yes, I in agree. Which I agree. They wanted to have control over what you're looking yeah. at on the fields so yeah. that they could highlight the things they want you to look at. Um, but now they have a 3D camera that they can do that. So it, it, I really like that mm, aspect too, of it a me lot. Me too. That's a good middle ground between the pre-rendered versus the yeah. free cam 3D. Yeah, and so obviously in the games that followed after that, it became commonplace and that's what people expected. wanted. You got to be able to control you got, your camera. Yeah. The, the the player wants control over that, and so that changed afterwards. But I really well, and like especially how a game that. like um, like Final Fantasy 15. Yeah, you 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 need the camera to be able yes. to move <laughs> <laughs> yes. in order to have fast pace you know combat the way that they do it. You kind of need control over that camera. Yeah, but there were other other new techniques too, like facial animation. You know, yeah, yeah. that were were, difficult, were really difficult. So uh, yeah. Koji Sugimoto, one of the main programmers we mentioned uh, for the game, he spoke about this and said, "We gave the designers a little more freedom with facial expressions, so they were able to include many bones in the faces. Mm. By doing this, we were able to create much more natural expressions." It's been said that the PS2 is a very complicated piece of hardware and that development is complex. That's indeed true, and it's taken a long time to master it, but the harder you try to push the hardware, the more rewarding the results. This is where the machine shows its true potential, and it's fascinating. And this was, for me, I mean, we had N64s and then GameCubes yes, afterwards, yep. but that jump from 
that console era to this one, mm-hmm. this was one of the most shocking mm-hmm. things to see. Yep. Was was facial animation in games yes. like this. It yeah. was like, holy Blinking crap. Blinking and talking, yeah. yeah and like, it, just like muscles in the faces and the, in yeah. the cheeks and jaws and, and the brows, you know, yeah. that would move, uh, not just um, like we were talking about before, where they, oh. they flash a different texture on the face. Yeah, yeah they just swap the where textures. Where they actually have like built sort of like muscle structures and bones in the faces that would animate. It was amazing. Um, also the jump in frame rate, to like a, a 60 yeah, FPS. Yeah. Um, I remember watching, I think Parker was playing um, Tony Hawk 3 on the GameCube or something. I was just like, this looks real. Like, yes, yes. The motion, the the animation yeah, yeah. of it was so smooth. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. And this was a similar, sho- similarly shocking thing to me. Yeah. The, first thing I, the first time I saw Final Fantasy X, I didn't have a PlayStation 2 at the time. Um, a friend from school had one and I would go to his house to play this game with him. And I was just absolutely like shell shocked at how yeah. amazing it looked, animation wise, and just like the the the, po- the number of polygons, the smoothness in the in the character models and the, the textures and things like that. It was just it was completely mind blowing. Yeah. This this leap, it was insane. You know, one of the things they were trying to do, Square Enix, well, SquareSoft at this time specifically was to reproduce what they had done for Final Fantasy 7 where as the PS1 evolved and you know came onto the scene they put Final Fantasy 7 out and it was this big shocking wow this is what video games can do now Mm -hmm. with Final Fantasy 10 because this was released at the beginning of the PS2 not right at the beginning but close you know within the year I think and they wanted that similar kind of thing like we're going to show people like what video games can be you know again and it's crazy that they were able to pull that off again, twice. right. Yeah, and they did it again. I, I don't think they could quite do it a third time, but they <laughs> did do it twice for sure Yeah, but with back-to-back consoles, where it's yeah. like they were the flagship game, the one that everyone said, oh, you've got to have Final Fantasy VII slash Final Fantasy X. You've yep. got to have it. Yep. And um, I think it's amazing that they were able to actually do that, but that came through just the raw creativity of, like, Let's like really push this hardware as hard yeah. as we can. I really think they did try to do that. And from a visual standpoint, in many ways, I think that they they pretty much achieved it with Final Fantasy 13 on the PlayStation 3. That one came out a little bit later though, right? It was 2010, and I think the PlayStation 3 so came 08? out. Yeah, so it was a couple years Okay. After, maybe 2007 or something, but they were actually, to... maybe six. It FF might have been 2006. Thir- Anyways. Oh, it was six. It, it was, was 2006. six. So it was like four years later. Several years later. FF13 but, looks phenomenal. But it looks really it good. It looks incredible. It, it just wasn't the flagship. It wasn't that this is what game that do. you have to have on yeah. the PlayStation yeah. 3. It never achieved that status. Yeah, not quite. But um, I think they were still in the same mindset yeah. making that game. Because that game went through quite a bit of a development hell, which is why it took so yeah, long to get it out. Course. But um, that's that kind of, for better or worse, it seemed to be that that was starting to become sort of like the expectation of a mainline yeah. Final Fantasy game. Yeah, it was yeah. going to define visually what could be done? What could be done on a new console generation? And it, it almost seems like Sony was banking on that because yeah. their partnership with Sony was such that Sony, in fact, Sony, when this game, so FF10 got delayed. A lot of people don't know this. Yes, it wasn't. It didn't meet its original original release date. Right. It was the first Final Fantasy to be publicly delayed, which was like yeah. was a big deal at the time, um, and it got pushed back to a specific date selected by Sony, not not Square. Mm. A, the day, um, the week that the GameCube was supposed to come out. Oh, and they were like, funny. we're going to put this game 
right next to the GameCube, which doesn't have a Final Fantasy, and people are going to say, whoa, the PS2 looks way better. Yep. And that was genius, but that was Sony's decision. That was well, not Square's Do you know what's decision. so interesting about that? Is that decision to delay it to yeah. the date that it was, mm. was what pushed Square into the red ink for the first time in the company's yes. history. They missed. Because their sales projections yeah, yeah. were totally off for that, like, sort of like, um, what do you call that? Uh, fiscal year. Fiscal year. Yeah, yeah. And that put all kinds of pressure on them to and make the structural changes yeah. in the upper management. So this is where yeah. Sakaguchi and uh, the president of the company at the time, who oh, basically totally supported Sakaguchi's vision on how Final Fantasy should be made. So yeah. you had your CEO or your president. Okay. Hisashi Suzuki was the president of, of Square Enix at the time. The executive vice president was Hironobu Sakaguchi. Mm. And then you had the COO, Yoichi Wada. Oh, Wada. Right. Yes. And Yoichi Wada was philosophically opposed to Sakaguchi's yeah. philosophy for how they should be running the business in well, how Wada, they developed Wada it. Wada wanted more sequels. Right? Yes, because yeah. in his mind, as a businessman, we've already created yes. these assets. Asset creation costs this much money and takes this much time. Yeah. Make a sequel so that you reuse the assets. Yes. Sequels, 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 yeah. because you can produce them cheaper and you yep. can bank on uh, you know, a franchise, a popular game or something like that and sell many, many more games that costs a fraction to make. Mm. Sakaguchi's philosophy from the beginning of his time at Square was never to make direct sequels to things yeah, yeah. because that's creatively bankrupt. We want to make yeah. a new thing every time that's shocking and, and right. you know, uh, creates like a brand new world and that was sort of his whole idea behind Final Fantasy was is, is this, uh, you, you, you go into it as if you'll never make a sequel to it. It's like the right. final thing you will ever oh, make. Oh, sure, yes. Right? Yeah, I like that. I like it's that. like this is yeah. our only chance. We're not going to save anything for a sequel because there will be no sequel. This is the last. See, treat this as if it's the last game you'll ever make. And you make. know I respect that yeah. a lot, right? Cause yes. I hate, I hate sequels. I hate season two. <laughs> yes. You know, it's like if you got good ideas, put them in your original story. Don't save them for something else. Right. Yeah. So really quickly, I kind of just want to qualify that last statement that I made there, right? Because... There's a lot of different quotes out there about where the name Final Fantasy came from. Um, a couple of different ones from Sakaguchi himself. So he's given talks, I think one was in 2011 and another in 2015, about the name Final Fantasy really just coming from the fact that they wanted a name that could be abbreviated to FF in English, the alliteration of which is pleasant to the ears of Japanese people. So originally they were going to go with fighting fantasy, but because there was a conflict with copyright with a game book series of the same name in Japan, they settled on Final Fantasy. All of that is true. But he has also been quoted in other interviews, I think in this one in particular in 2007, as saying, the name Final Fantasy was a display of my feeling that if this didn't sell well, I was going to quit the games industry and go back to university. I'd have to repeat a year so I wouldn't have had any friends. It was really a final situation. And then, in addition to this, here toward the end, he said, Way back then, the spirit was that we weren't making a product, but a creation. It was putting our soul into the production, pouring all of your ideas into the game, even if they crop up during development, not saving anything for the sequel. So a combination of these things are sort of at the center of what the spirit of Final Fantasy was, but certainly one part of that was this idea that you're going to treat this 
like it's the final game you'll ever make. And you're not going to save ideas for a sequel. You're going to put it all into this. So that's where I'm coming from when I'm making this point about the conflict of philosophy between Yuichi Wada, who wanted to make tons and tons of direct sequels, and Sakaguchi, who was very against that from the beginning. So they butted heads about this. Hmm. Now, this decision, and it's interesting you say Sony made this decision to push FF10 into well, the next fiscal year. I want to say that Square Enix maybe had to push it back, but Sony picked where it would be yes, pushed back when, to. Yes. Yeah, yeah. As so, a, yeah. But the fact that it got pushed out of that fiscal year, because a lot of people blame Spirits Within for being yes. the reason why they were in this horrible financial situation. Yeah. And it's, it's not exclusively that. It's part of it, but it's not exclusively that. Yeah. They lost a lot of money on that. But had Final Fantasy X come out in the fiscal year it was meant to come out in, they would not have ever hit Red Ink. They would have been fine. Mm -hmm. Because Final Fantasy X did so well. Like crazy well, yeah. That they, Square was back on their feet like this. Yeah. And then Kingdom Hearts on the back of that, yeah, which Kingdom Sakaguchi well. was an executive producer on it, and yes. put Tetsuya Tom, uh, uh, Nomura on. Nomura, yeah, yeah. He, they would he have was, been fine. He was still making good decisions, yes. you're saying, as the executive. So vice this president. one failure yeah. did not like create mm -hmm. this disaster. It, all it did was push it into a fiscal year where Yoichi Wada could take advantage of the situation. Ooh. And so like th now the investors come to, oh my gosh, we've lost all this money in this fiscal year. Mm -hmm. Let's make all these changes. Yoichi Wada becomes president. His philosophy becomes the, what dominates Square Enix's yeah. philosophy thereafter yep. into the next well, really two console Final Fantasy X got made right after that. A billion Kingdom Hearts sequels. sequels. Yes. <laughs> Final Fantasy Thirteen trilogy. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's basically they were all they developing a twelve sequel as well, but I think that got scrapped. Well, they did have a, a DS like Tactics Final oh, Fantasy twelve really? game, Revenant Wings. I don't know if you ever. Oh, seen Oh, Revenant that. Wings. No, yeah. no, right. So, anyways, I never played it, but there was another one that was being yeah. developed. It's not. It's not Spirits Within's fault yeah. that they were in a bad place. That, that's part of it, but the other part of it was FF10 being delayed yeah. into the next fiscal year, mm. which wasn't really, it, it was just the way that the, the business world is run that made yeah. it look like that. The money people but didn't it. But it was like, like it. very, yeah. very quickly off the back of that scary red ink release, or, uh, announcement, we have this game that's going to freaking like fix everything. So oh, it made them <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Hundreds of millions. Just in the first week, I think this game sold like two million copies. Yeah. Which and it would have accounted for like well more than what they spent on this game. I think this game's budget was a little over $32 million yeah. back in 2000. So it'd be like maybe double that now. Right. Um, but what they made was like 150 million, like that first year, you know. Yeah. And then they made even more past that because this game kept selling well, well beyond. Yeah. So yeah, I, you have you make a very good point. The, this, it, it's just a, it was almost like an accident that this had to happen. But the forces were at work underneath to take advantage. Should this happen anyways, it almost seemed like this was inevitable. Yeah. They were being pushed here, and something was going to give them the excuse to kind of overturn everything and then merge with Enix and go forward in right. a new direction. Right. Something was going to make it. But it was happen. a fateful decision to yeah. push FF10 back. It changed yeah. a lot of things because Oh, I'm of it. sure. I'm sure. Um, okay. So, another thing I want to touch on is uh, the re recognizing as you're playing this game the stylistic differences between this team's way of doing things and other Final Fantasy games, right? Yeah. And this is not to say, I mean, obviously I have a preference, but it's not to mm. say one's better than the other. It's just to create like the um, 
media literacy yes. <laughs> in our followers oh, to be able to see good, differences good. in things and understand yeah, yeah. why they're done and things like that. Good. So um, we talked a little bit earlier about the maps being different, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is something that you see in basically all of the games made by this team after this. So mm. in Final Fantasy VIII, they still had the world, the overworld map. And, yeah. Um, Your in little fact, miniature representation. I brought up a, a, an interview in the FF8 podcast mm. that... Yoshinori Kitase said it's not a Final Fantasy game without a world Unless map. Unless it has that. Right? Nice. But then here <laughs> is yeah. when that really started to change for this team. Mm. Where they started to design their worlds in such a way to where they're basically very long linear hallway-like map fields yeah. that have branching paths to a treasure, but mostly you're just walking mm. down a line, a hallway to go from one end to the other. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit more much later in the podcast about why this is a good or a bad thing. Yeah, I was gonna say um, that in and of itself doesn't mean that it's a bad yes. story because it's the pathway is linear. Yes. It can affect gameplay and maybe your perception a little, but that doesn't mean that it's bad just because yes. it's linear. You know? Right. And I actually there are many linear, very, very linear games that are some mm -hmm. of my favorites of all time, like the Prince of Persia trilogy on oh, yeah. um, this era's console era here. Exceptionally linear. Mm. It's not linearity alone that makes something enjoyable or not. Right. And we'll go over the differences because this became a huge controversial thing on Final Fantasy XIII, which 13 had the same particular. map director, same mm. team of people, okay. but people did not complain about it in this game. Mm. They complained about it in that game. Okay. So what's the difference? That's something to look forward we'll to talk about. later in the podcast. But another thing they took away. Uh, was the airship and the overworld. And this to me is something that I've really, really missed. And I, yeah. I just desperately wish they would just go back to it. Yeah. I know that like open world is the thing now, or yeah. this sort of like in Final Fantasy VII Remake, it's very similar, very linear. It's kind of small hallway sort of like maps yeah. that lead into a little bit of a bigger open area to do a fight and then go back into the hallway again. <laughs> connecting you to different fights. Yeah. I, I don't love, personally, don't love that way of approaching map and, and field design. Um, but that's the way that this team really does it. In FF10, mm. it doesn't bother me very much at all because mm. they do a really good job of mixing up how you interact with the world. I think so, yeah. But I do still miss the feeling, which I thought was a very quintessential Final Fantasy thing, of the first time, even just the first time you get a vehicle, whether it's oh, yeah. the buggy in Final Fantasy VII, you or can drive around. The or chocobo. A chocobo. Yeah. Or a ship to yeah. go across the ocean. But in particular, the best moment almost of all those PS1 RPGs from that time was the airship. Yes. You get the airship and now I can fly you anywhere. Can go wherever you that want sense go. of freedom, just like yeah. the whole world just opened up to me. Yeah. What have I not, where have I not been yet? And you'll I spend there, the next there. like five hours of the game <laughs> yes. is you just looking around and exploring for the hidden treasures in different places. Exactly right. Going back to the beginning of the game to go visit. Yes, and this game yeah. does not have that. It, mm -hmm. it, when you get the airship later on the game, you basically just get a list of towns. Like we said, the, it's sort of represented with nodes on like a map. Yeah, yeah. Like a you know like a, an unfurled map or something of yeah. Spira. And you have the nodes that are the different locations, and you just sort of choose from a list where to go, and you sort of warp there. And you're just there. Um, now, there's a little bit of nuance to this, this discussion, which I'll get into in just a second. But I wanted, I wanted to uh, put out this quote from Sakaguchi, because a lot of people may not know this either. The airship is 
essentially it was pioneered by him in Final Fantasy 1. Oh really? The whole concept of no an way. airship in an RPG like this mm. was a Final Fantasy 1 invention. Sweet. Um, and the reason for it was because in Dragon Quest, or the, the original Dragon Warrior, which is Dragon Quest 1 yeah. in Japan, um, they had like a warp magic. So it's like you could use a, a spell that would sort of like let you go to different places and mm. fast travel, right? Um, but Sakaguchi had a different idea about how he wanted to approach this. He said, as for warp magic that would let you move between towns, it would definitely be convenient, but if players use it too much, they'll never get familiar with the terrain or map. Ah, with the Final Fantasy solution. series, we want both the story and the terrain of the world to remain in players' memories. So our solution was to include the airship vehicle. Flying around like that feels great anyway, so players won't be bothered by the lack of a proper warp spell, I think. So it's a fast way to nice. get where you want to go, but say you're traveling between that and you see something over here, well, what's that? Yeah. So you're not missing out on all of this content that you've created secrets in the world that yeah. you would miss by just warping over here and not yeah, like yeah. moving past it physically yeah. with an airship. And so like that was That's the cool. whole design philosophy behind that choice. Mm. And so you miss that a little yeah. bit. It, it, it feels different. You don't yeah. get like this attachment to the geography of the world, the the um, yeah, the like orientation the where things are in location. relation to each other. Yes, yeah, and landmarks and things like that that yeah. you do when you're actually physically moving through the space. Now, here is the caveat to this, or the counterpoint that yeah. can I think reasonably be made to this. Um, on the flip side of that, the airship's list of locations in this game does include like hidden options in it. Right. Oh, okay. Um, so discovering those requires the use of like a coordinate system. Oh, yeah. So like you, you kind of like explore around with coordinates on the map to like see, oh, here's a hidden location. So there's nice. still an element of that that exists in this form. Okay. It's not like it's totally abandoned, but I still don't feel that it feels the same. Okay, right. And, or has the same impact overall. Yeah. So that's one of the major changes that was made to the series hereafter, to Final Fantasy's design philosophy. Yeah, because that 12, goes back to the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, twelve is all zones. I, I know they're large zones. They're not like yeah. these super super linear hallways. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're massive zones. zones, but they're still. It's just a teleport. It's, it's yeah, yeah. It's basically you're warping around. Right? Yeah, and even with Final Fantasy 15, who technically in the Royal Edition lets you fly the car <laughs> in an open world game, it's just not the same. It's not yeah. the same at all. Yeah. The other major difference in style between this team and former teams was, mm -hmm. and we talked about this way more in the FF8 podcast, so again, I'll point you there, but they were really driving a more realistic aesthetic to things. Oh, yeah. Uh, the idea of fantasy based in reality, which oh, was yes. kind of the tagline for 15 a yeah, little yeah. bit, was started in 8, yeah. but it really started to take off here. So anyways, that's the other stylistic difference. So the way that they handle maps... Um, and, and traversal and exploration, mm. um, the way that they handled the visuals. They really focus on that. Like, that's almost yeah. like number one. I think for, so. For a while, um, and I actually have a quote somewhere in here. I don't know where it is, but we're, we've been going on for so long that I kind of want to get through the rest <laughs> of this okay. more quickly. But for a while, Square Enix was making games visuals first, gameplay second. Yeah. Like, that was the way it was going. It was like they would create the art and the assets first, yeah. and then they would start thinking about the game that would go with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, I think it was um, 
the guy who did, uh, I was just reading this, uh, for, shoot, um, hold on, I just had it right here. The guy who produced My Life is King, uh, Toshiro Tsuchida. He oh, was yeah. talking about how he was like rethinking the way that they approach games because for a long time on Square they were doing art and assets first and gameplay yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, no, we gotta, re- we gotta do it the other way around kind yeah. of a thing, right? Anyways, Square, and, and of course, um, Naoki Yoshida. Oh, Yoshida. Na- Naoki Yoshida. Okay. He said something similar, right? Like the, uh, the obsession with graphics in this company needs yeah. to change. That's what yeah, yeah. So anyways, this kind of became like an obsessive thing for them was like the, making these amazing visuals. But that limited the scope of the game. Yeah, yeah. Because it was like yeah, rendering this, optimizing it for the hardware, right? Yeah. So that's why they kind of stuck to these linear hallway right. sort of map designs. Yeah. So that you're not rendering as much or so that you can hide load screens yeah, or yeah. things of that nature. Whereas uh, Final Fantasy XII, while Final Fantasy XII in many ways uh, on the surface looks better than Final Fantasy X, mm. those models are actually lower poly. Oh, yeah. And there's like a lot of other things that they're doing to be able oh, to have really? massive maps like that. Oh, interesting. It's mostly okay. an art direction thing that yeah. gives it its look, not mm. so much like the actual quality of those models. Interesting. And okay, FF10's yeah. models are actually higher quality on the really? base PS2 than Final Fantasy 12s are. Wow. And that's that's because they designed their world the way they did, and so yeah, it yeah. was easier on so the rendering. So they were able to do that. Yes. And that's why Final Fantasy Thirteen was designed in the way that was. Oh, okay, why Final Fantasy VII Remake is designed in the way that it is. Yeah, yeah. They're pushing for those high fidelity, realistic, yeah. fantasy based on reality yep. visuals. So that's the other telltale sign of this team's style. Anyways, um, I think I've more or less made my point there, but I, I think we should also touch on voice acting a little bit. Yeah, since so this was the first Final Fantasy game to have voice acting. The first right? one, yeah. How do you feel just generally about the voice acting in the game? I don't like voice acting in most games. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So well, I, I tend to be averse to it. I, 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 have a, I, I take that back. I don't love it in Japanese role-playing games very often. <laughs> I think it's fine in a lot of other genres. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> but it's yeah. not even just like Japanese games. It's Japanese role-playing games. There's like yeah. a very particular style, and it's tied with anime. Yes. Uh, in the way that English dubs are done for these games and these shows that I do not appreciate the style very much. Yeah. Typically, I would rather not have it than have it be the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. I don't Generally hate it speaking. in this game, though. I don't, um, I don't for the most part. There is, I'm listening to the Japanese. Okay. And that's how I get around it. Yeah. I'm okay with listening to this game in Japanese. Yeah. I am, I have not actually listened to much of this game in English. Yeah. So, I don't know if I'm, I don't know, I would, I tend to be of the opinion that things made in a certain language were, were geared towards that language and would sound better in that original language than yeah. whatever they're, you know, localized to. Yeah. So I've actually, I've seen very little of what Final Fantasy X is in English. Yeah. I think that most of the time it's fine. I'm like yeah. not bothered by it really that much. And I remember being more bothered by it than I have been so far on this playthrough. Mm. Um, I will bring up examples as we're going through the game in ways in which I feel like the direction could have been stronger, but I really feel like the problem with this team's English dubs is not always a writing issue. It's more a writing issue on 13. In this (sighs) game, I don't think it's a writing issue so much as, or, or even an acting talent issue as much as it is a direction issue. Okay. Because... Final Fantasy XII has like, <clears throat> excuse me, 
Final Fantasy XII is like phenomenal voice acting. I think it's quite good. It's probably better. It's better than almost any game I've ever played. Yes, is Final Fantasy XII. Final Fantasy XII's writing and voice acting yeah. is phenomenal. It's quite good. The the translation in that game was done by Alexander O. Smith, ah. who also did Vanguard Story and who yes. also did this game. And who did this game? Too, I was going to say <laughs> Alexander did this too. O. Smith did this game. There's a really funny quote from him. I, I may have written it down actually. I, I'll, I'll let you do it then. So Alexander <laughs> O. Smith said that. In writing such a such in such a constricting manner, given that the Japanese, the English couldn't overdo what the Japanese had done, right? Yes. So there was an issue with your audio track, right? So if your audio track is going to play something, it needs to be the exact length of the FMV. It yeah. couldn't be longer. That right. would cause the whole system to crash, right? And so he said, trying to fit everything in for every cutscene into the allotted amount. Um, it was like something akin to writing four or five movies worth of dialogue entirely in, hai- in haiku form. <laughs> and, of course, the actors had to act and act well within those restraints. Yeah. Right? So he's writing basically just a bunch of haikus because the English is too, we're too verbose. We, we say too much in, you know, it takes us too long to say what we need to say. So when the Japanese say their short thing in English, it's like, ah, it doesn't fit. So you've got to be poetic to try to make it work. Right. And it just doesn't sound natural yes. when you do that. Right. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. And, and this is made more apparent because like before, they could just write dialogue into a box. But yeah, now yeah. they have to try to match the character speaking because it's voice acted. Yeah, yeah. So it's like really even hard. more difficult to like yeah. fit the English into the same and, space And as what the you say, because this is funny, because with anime, it's not as big a deal if the voices don't match the mouth because the yeah. mouths tend to they not just do anything anyways. too crazy. Yeah. yeah, they're not too detailed. This game is incredibly detailed and the, the 3D is really good and they really took time making sure those lips matched the syllables of the Japanese They language. tried to. They did a pretty yeah, well, good job. In Japanese, job. they did. That's what I'm saying. In English, they did. <laughs> but because they were so particular and detailed in the Japanese, that made it so impossible to do the English. Right. So they were trying to fit in whenever the Japanese would say the M sound and whatever. What the, the mouth movements, they were trying to find English words that would fit well with the movement of the mouth, not just the context of the scene or the translation, right? right. So if there was another English word that's maybe less natural, but it fits the way the mouth was moving, it maybe it's a five-syllable word in the mouth. You didn't want to use your two-syllable word for it. You got to use the longer one, even though it's worse. But it fits the. It makes it seem like the guy's actually saying it. Right. Then you use that word. But that's hard for voice actors when you're doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. And a lot of dubs will do that. It's funny because the reverse isn't necessarily true. Um, in Japan and Korea and Europe and all over the world, they watch a lot of American movies in English, and they will not mind so much if the dub is doesn't, doesn't match. match perfectly because most of the high quality content they watch tends to be a dub and so it's not a big deal. Well, I think that traditionally was very true in say the 70s, 80s, 90s Hollywood movies yes. were like Yes. I, I think now the world's catching up to Hollywood I think so. a little more. I think so. Yeah. I think so. But especially during this time in the 80s and 90s yeah. and video games and at the beginning of this, you know. Um, something that Americans don't do is watch dubbed content. Uh, we tend to just watch American stuff, you know? Yeah. And so whenever we import things from other... That's why Americans would rather not read subtitles. They'd rather not see... The, they, they they are very picky that the dub has to match perfectly because they, it's, it's difficult, you know? Anyways, I don't want to be too hard on Americans. Yeah. But in Japan, it's not as big a deal if the dub doesn't match. In America, it has to match because we don't want to feel like it's a dub. It needs to feel... 
like it was normal because we aren't we aren't exposed to dubs as much. So that makes it really really hard for the voice actors and stuff. Because um, I think um, what's his name who who voiced Titus? Uh, James Arnold Taylor. James Arnold Taylor. He was watching the video as he was yeah. giving his performance. Right. So that that's part of how you make sure the lips sync up. But it's a different language, mm -hmm. right? Like that's so strange. You, you, it should be a time constraint. But because he was watching the lip movements as well as the time constraint and everything that needed to be done, it it affects your performance. It does. That, that, for that's sure. the whole point. Well, the other part they of aren't it. speaking English. If you're if you're trying to dub someone who spoke English, but you're dubbing their voice just to make it sound deeper or whatever. Yeah. That's one thing. They're at least saying the same words as you. When yeah. you're watching the video and you're trying to speak as this person's speaking and their mouth isn't doing what you're doing or yeah. you're trying to make your mouth do what theirs is doing, but it's a different language, that can introduce so many it's problems. It's going to affect the convincing natural nature in which you're capable of delivering a line. Yes. Just, just it, it's yeah. inevitable. It's never yeah. going to feel as natural that way well, yes. under those constraints. It, so absolutely. when you consider all those yeah. things, it's like, the talent here did a really good job. Of I what think they they're had. good voice actors in general. Um, uh, now, yeah, I really like James Arnold heard. Taylor. I yeah. think he's a phenomenal voice actor who oh, has really? had a prolific career. Nice. He's an, a, a, particularly a great impressionist. Oh yeah. Um, so he does like Obi Wan Kenobi's voice in the Clone Wars, oh, and nice. he does Fred Flintstone in a bunch of cartoons. Oh and really? So his range is amazing. Oh cool. He can do all kinds of voices, and he's yeah. he's done a lot of um, like. Michael J. Fox, who did the voice of Milo, I think, in Atlantis, um, oh. he he stepped in when Michael J. Fox couldn't record lines oh, and, he and did? did did that character. I would never in in shows. I haven't and seen other that movie things. in a while, but that's interesting. So like he does like a perfect Michael J. Fox nice. impression. Wow. So he's a dynamic, incredibly talented actor. Yeah. Um, and. I have my qualms with the voice of Titus, just like many other fans do, that I will talk about later. But it has nothing to do with his talent. Yeah, nothing. I, I would probably because I've seen I've seen very little, but what I've seen, I just tend not to blame everything on one element. Anyways, yeah. it's too easy to just blame the actor. It's yes. like no, there's like. There's the system, there's the writing, there's the direction. We don't know quite what the direction was like here. Yeah. Often for anime and for video games, at least 20 years ago, um, when somebody was you know, giving their, their voice talent, they would hear the Japanese, the original Japanese, and they would say, okay, do it the way he did it. Yes. And that's not how you localize. That's not a good idea. Yes. You, you don't want to deliver it the way they said it in Japanese. Yes. Um, and the way they say certain things in Japanese, and specifically the tone of voice, the drama, the way that they are, are speaking more theatrically. It's not something that Americans want as much in, you know, what we consume. I agree. Uh, especially as it, as it relates to females with the uh, women voices, right? Yeah. In Japan, they're often very high-pitched with the anime video game they're type. They're very cutesy. In this game, they are a lot. Inflection. I yeah. think Riku's voice, she sounds like she's 10 in yeah. the Japanese. Yeah. Really, really young. Yeah. Like, really young. Yeah. <laughs> which is strange for her character. Um, and then you can't just do that when you bring it over to America. You can't mm -hmm. just have a 10-year-old sounding voice. You know, you've got to actually localize it. Yes. Uh, but they tend to just say, oh, do what that voice actor did. And it's not, yes. it's, not, it's not good. So this is another sort of telltale sign of the style of this team, yeah. right? They sort of lean into that. Yeah, the anime kind and of This is the yeah. writing and the voice direction side of things. Mm -hmm. uh, because the voice direction and writing on 12 is very, very different from 10. It's not anime at all. But like, 10 yeah. and 13 
lot of crossover, uh -huh, a lot true. of similarities in true. how they're voiced and how they're written. Yeah. Um, I have a whole thing in my Final Fantasy XIII mm. retrospective of the girl who does Vanille's voice mm. being coached on how to do breath, uh, like grunts a, a very and grunts, and, and it yeah. sounds very sexual, and it's very um, uncomfortable for her to do, to like demonstrate it with the interviewer. Yeah. The biggest challenge was getting the sound right. There's a particular sound that Vanille makes that from the minute I walked in, they're like, there's this sound you're gonna need to learn. And, um, and? <laughs> I got it after the first session, but it was, um, that was the biggest thing, creating the sounds of Vanille. I would say that 450 at least of my lines included vocal quality sounds that aren't necessarily natural. May like you give I, us a sample of one of these sounds? Sure. Um, say they wanted a happy reaction, it would be uh -huh, and sad reaction is uh -huh, and then running would be uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. so it's a little bit. <laughs> but she's like, they told me specifically, like this is, there's a very specific way that you need to do these breathe, this breathing and these grunts. And it, it, it's to match, <laughs> it's to match the Japanese, right? And so oh, like, man. What I'm saying is, is that this is another one of those things where yes. it's just like these Final Fantasy games have these things in common, right? Um, yeah. So it's a it's a trademark of their style of the way that they do things. And there's even we'll get into this probably in next episode when we talk about the opening scene. It, it just there's mm -hmm. something about the 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 way they're introducing mysteries that just like immediately this is very Kingdom Hearts to me. This, it oh, feels yes. very Kingdom Hearts yes. to me. This, yes. this the way that they're doing this. Yeah. It, it, there's a style that you can recognize. Totally. So very much. So. I just want to point that out, right? So that as you're playing through the game, you can kind of pick up on these things yeah. so that you can know who it is that's behind the decisions being made here so you can see what was their ambition? Why did they make the choices they make? You know, mm. what were they thinking when they did this? Um, we haven't even touched on the battle system yet, but Battle system goes back away from ATB, which had been the standard since four, mm -hmm. and takes it back to a true turn-based system, so that, that you, you know it, the game actually pauses when you're going through menus. It's not like yeah. the enemies are going to get their turn and keep attacking you, right? Because you're slow. Yeah. Right. So um, they've kind of gone away from that, and and all these other things that we've talked about, they've gone away from. And yeah. one of the big new challenges was voice acting. Yeah. And like, how are we going to do this? This is going to be a this is going to be expected from from here on out in video games, right? Um, so th th there was a lot of things, a lot of things that went into the development of this game. Um, I have one more quote here from Yoshinori Kitase. Uh, At the beginning, none of us really knew what to do. The real difficulty there was we had always had the option to keep fixing fixing text up until the very last second of the final master versions because mm. there was no voices, right? So oh, it's like, yeah. oh, if we want to change the line, we could change it right at the, in the 11th yeah. hour. Yeah. Um, if there was something that was hard to understand, we could just put in a hint. Um, but once voice acting was added in, you had to make sure that the voice actor had time in their schedule to go and record in the studio. Mm -hmm. Once you realized how much was involved, it became clear that the character lines needed to be firmed up as early as possible. This was very different from previous games. And I remember struggling to get everything finalized so early. So things were changing. And also these yeah. games have, I mean, just tens of thousands of lines of dialogue. Yeah, <laughs> somewhere around 10. I think it was 9,000. There's um, a, In the neighborhood of 9,000 lines of dialogue yeah. in front of me. It's 10. insane. That it's is over 9,000. Over, over 9,000. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It yeah. is just massive, massive. So in any case, um, 
it has, this act, I, I was actually afraid that we might not have as much uh, <laughs> content to go over for the development history as we normally well, do. But we, we actually filled up a whole first episode we with did. development history. Well, so, I, there I, you go. In that case, I actually have a little more to add then Kay. if we're just going to stay Let's here. Let's do that. Um, and one of them is about the leveling system. The, well, the progression system. Oh, character which progression. Was different. The sphere grid. Yeah. yeah. It's different from previous where you just go up a level and you're just stronger now because you went up a level. That's another right? thing that's common to this team's yeah. style is ah. the, the Crystarium and, 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 the, and even Final Fantasy VII Remake has this a little bit. Oh, There's yeah, this yeah. spherical, nodal sort of like yeah. progression. Well, I love it because you're, yeah. making, you're making these shapes and patterns that are just really significant and really yeah. cool and these mandalas and all this stuff. Um, but... Um, the, it changed from what it was originally supposed to be. So it yeah. was going to be taking on the, the Polynesian kind of nature of the theme, you know, thematic material within the game. Uh, there were going to be tattoos that you were going to slowly create a really cool tattoo on your body that ah, instead of creating that's cool. this abstract kind of idea, oh, that's way you were cooler. actually <laughs> going to be drawing and then you were going to add different elements and there was like a, a grid, a space where you could... Like it, it was supposed to represent like your back or your chest or something, and you were gonna be able to customize your own tattoo and then put oh different elements in, and each different tattoo would e would equate a power. I know? wonder if this is what lingered on Jekt for the tattoo on his chest. Ah, there's that. I wonder if that Seymour part of the design also has some tattoos. Was a lingering idea from that idea. I wonder. I bet you it is. I'll bet you it is because it's his whole. Body, yeah, and right? even in the first scene, we'll get into this next time. But yeah, yeah. When when Titus looks off and he sees the burning symbol, like the Jet yes. symbol, he's like, "Oh, yes. my old man." And that's his um his team's logo, kind yeah. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder it's if that necklace. was left over to show how powerful someone is. Ah, is like he the, had the completed... The expansion of a, a tattoo on Interesting, his interesting. That's actually way cooler than That's what they did. That's possible. <laughs> it's sweet. I don't know exactly why they dropped it, uh, but maybe they couldn't do enough, or maybe the player would have had too much freedom to customize the tattoo, although I don't think that was the case. I'm pretty sure it would have been revealed going out, but I don't know. There's not a ton of info on how it was going to work, mm. just that it was going to be a tattoo system yeah. in keeping with the um, some of the more Polynesian traditions of, right. you know, tattooing as you as you get older. You that's get more tattoos. You know, as you super, get stronger, as you do more things, you get tattoos cool. about the thing. That's, oh, that's I think so it's cool. sweet. And, and in some ways, I'm like, why need, did they not do it? Some but, other game needs to do this now. Yes, some other game should do this. <laughs> the idea's been out there for 20 years now. They, do it. In fact, that system was shown when they first um, unveiled this game at the Square Expo event, something in 2000 or so. Um, they showed that system. Mm. Along with an online functionality that was going to be called playonline.com, something like that. Wow. And this Final Fantasy X was supposed to be an online game, at least in some aspects, we're going to be online. They couldn't get any of that to work. Wow. So they just totally scrapped the whole thing, including the tattoo system. But I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that you've got your main character, right? And you're going to have to he'll take off his shirt. You won't see the tattoo otherwise. What's the point? And... He's just going to be loaded with tattoos by the end of the game. That'd and be so cool. I, it would be sweet. It would be sweet. <laughs> but at the same time, certain cultures are averse oh, to sure, that kind maybe. of stuff. And, and American culture, say what you want, but in Japanese culture, you don't just oh, go don't get tattoos. The tattoos only are, people... well, Oh, okay, it's this, kind of like a... Uh, what is it? Um, Yakuza. Yakuza yeah. Association. Now, I think that's changing maybe the past decade or so. Um, yeah. more, it's becoming a little more common. Like I noticed, if for in is Korea, but it's similar culture-wise. Um, some of the members of BTS, mm. one of them, I think, got a tattoo on his arm. And it mm. was like a, you know, 
And that's like, like a, ooh. He's a rebel. He's a real rebel in that culture. Yeah. But, and of course, that's all decided by their agents. Like, it's not like they actually have sure. any say in that stuff. They don't really own themselves, you know? It's all they're idols, branding. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk about <laughs> some of that later on, the idol nature of everything. Yeah. Um, but in Japan, man, at least, especially in this time, the year 2000, 2001, 2002, like, the only people that have tattoos are former or current Yakuza members. Crazy. And, and maybe a few, you know, emo punk people besides that. And that's it. Like, nobody else has tattoos in Japan. It's very, very uncommon. Um, and so I wonder if that kind of played into it a little the as well. Where they're like, this is a like... sweet idea, but dude, our dude's going to look like a total gangster. <laughs> <laughs> and he's only like a 17-year-old kid. And like, I don't know if Japan's going to like this. You know, yeah. I, I can imagine that that may have played a, a factor. I could see that. I could see that. Such a good idea, though. That's so cool. Yeah. That's literally so cool. And, it, <laughs> and yeah, the fact that Jack has that giant tattoo yeah, on his yeah. chest makes me think that must have been... A remnant I would, of I that would idea. think so. Yeah, that's crazy. And I would also, I would also say Seymour as well. He's, yeah, Seymour he's got too. Some, exactly. Some of that imagery. Well, there you have it, people. Hopefully oh, but then here's was... the other thing. Because <laughs> well, every character up um, levels up, right? Yes. So now Yuna's going to end up with oh, a full tattoos. sleeve of tattoos. <laughs> that would be so sick, though. It would be so I know, unique. I'm not saying it's bad. It'd I'm just saying awesome. you're going to end up with a full cast where everyone is just tattooed <laughs> like up. Fa- the, like Mike Tyson, like fake, Mike Tyson. Like face tattoos just and stuff. all over, you know? And it's just like, okay, it just kind of messes with some of their character design, you know? It's like, what's going to happen here? Mm. And I think they were allowing some level of customization on the tattoos. So it's like, what? was this going to end up looking like? What could possibly happen here? I mean, I don't know. That's crazy. Well, hope you guys enjoyed that first episode. Uh, we were trying in the last um, podcast series we did yeah. to break up development history over the course of the series rather yes. than doing it front-loaded. But there were many of you who asked us to front-load it again. So we did this so we did. for you. We hope yes. that you enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> we we will, will still maybe have little anecdotes. I know I have a few later on oh, sure. of different quotes and things from the developers sure. as we go. But um, for the most part, that is the history of the development of this game. Yeah. So we will jump into the uh, where you should play up to for this next, ep- next episode. Is up through well, when you arrive at the Kilika Temple. Yes. Get at least up to there. We might not make it that far. I don't think. <laughs> but we're I don't going think to we will. try. <laughs> and this may be a longer, longer podcast like Xenogears, but yeah. hopefully not as long as Xenogears. Not as long as Xenogears, half as long as Xenogears, yes, maybe. But, um, but we hope that this is something you guys want, and yeah. so we're going give to give the people what they what want. What they want. They want Final Fantasy X. Thank you for joining us. We will see you again next week. Peace out, everybody. <laughs>